0: Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. All right, I am back here today with a returning guest. I had Brienne on a few months ago talking about her ADHD diagnosis and how that intersected with her eating disorder. And we have kept in touch through Instagram since then, and she now has an autism diagnosis. So we're doing this follow-up episode to talk more in depth about that and her journey and how that intersects with the ADHD. ADHD diagnosis as well, and I'm super excited to be able to chat with her again because her episode was quite the hit, so I'm sure you all are feeling the same way. So, Brienne, I will let you introduce yourself a little bit. Give us an update on what life has been like ever since that last episode.
1: Yeah, so... I had like fully embraced my ADHD diagnosis, I've been going down the rabbit hole of like scheduling things differently and like learning to work with my brain and things have been going pretty well. My workflow had gotten quite a bit easier just like taking advantage of how my brain worked. Things had been pretty dang good. Obviously there are still some some big questions but yeah still making my podcast, writing the audio drama, pumping out all kinds of scripts, so, just
0: doing the usual. So, what led you to seek out an autism diagnosis? Because you are 30, right? And I am. And that's quite a big life change to be able to accept that or even realize after so many years that maybe that's what you have. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about that.
1: I think you're absolutely right and a lot of people don't realize that because like adhd i think is more widely accepted but autism has such a stigma around it right so i research everything <laughs> even when i don't need to so looking at some stuff about adhd i saw a venn diagram and it mm-hmm. was adhd and autism traits and i was like all right yeah got all the adhd ones have most of the overlap ones. And oh, geez, I have a lot of the ones that are strictly on the autism side. Mm. And they're ones that I didn't know were autistic traits. As a teenager, I was a nanny for autistic kids. Like I worked at a respite program for parents of autistic kids. I thought I knew what it looked like, but I knew what it looked like in young, non-speaking white boys Right, And that's along with ADHD, how there is both, there's a gender and very racial gap in diagnosing people. It is, I would say, arguably even more so for autism. So I went down the rabbit hole and I had to confront a lot of my own misinformation about it. I thought I'm far too social. I couldn't be autistic. Yeah. It's not that you don't like talking to people. It's that it's exhausting and Mm -hmm. there's some miscommunications and there's so much nuance. I didn't understand, but I was still having meltdowns like I talked about in the previous episode. Right. And in looking at the nuance of what an ADHD meltdown looks like and an autism meltdown looks like, I was like, okay, I'm having autistic meltdowns. I had called them panic attacks my whole life because that's the language I had for it, but looking at like my behavior toward them where I I felt out of control and like sometimes I would want to throw inanimate objects or I would just be yelling and then I kind of go nonverbal at the end. That was book autism. So I was like, Mm -hmm. I I have to know because the more and more I'm learning, the more it seems like this might be that missing piece of the puzzle I'm not quite understanding. So Uh,
0: what traits resonate with you in your experience? What are the traits or aspects that you didn't know were a part of that diagnosis?
1: Yeah. So the things that really, really solidified that I needed to get some answers were learning about something called hyperlexia. That is where a child learns to read at a really strangely early age. And I was reading at two and a half years old. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. So by the time I got to kindergarten, I was around a fourth grade level and they're like, okay, we're going to bump her up a grade. She knows all of this. And looking at hyperlexia, 80% of people with that are autistic. And that's another thing where I had to confront my own misinformation, internalized ableism about this because I thought, well, if you're autistic, it's usually delayed speech, right? No, that's where the spectrum comes in. You have a spectrum of traits. So I was at the other end of that trait where I was hyperverbal. And that was a really big clue. I also have a linguistics degree, which feeds into that. And I'm I'm very good at language, like not just English. I'm very, very good at language. So Mm -hmm. that was a, a big, big clue. The other was my high pain tolerance. I had seen kids who were hypersensitive to touch when I nannied. And like if a towel I gave them when they got out of the swimming pool was not the right texture, it would send them an overload. If there was a tag in their shirt, it would send them into overload. But I'm someone who I've dislocated my shoulder twice and reset it myself.
0: Oh, wow.
1: I do not know how many bones I've broken because if I went in every time I thought I'd broken one, it would just be ridiculous. I've reset a broken finger. Like, I have a high pain tolerance. Yeah, wow. And again, the autism spectrum isn't less autistic to more autistic. It's where on these certain traits do you lie? It's more of like a a circular chart of things. So me, I'm not hypersensitive to touch. I'm hyposensitive. And I had no clue. I do have some sensory issues. Like I'm really sensitive to sound. And I thought, well, I like to go to like Big loud, hardcore, and punk shows. I can't be that sensitive to sound. But understanding that with autism, it's unexpected noises or mm. repetitive noises, or you're just hearing too many things. And that I really identified with. I have to have like headphones in most of the day, or I can hear the electricity running in the refrigerator and the bubbles in my sparkling water, and I can hear all these things. And that's where Sensory issues for autism differ from the ones for ADHD because with ADHD it's there are a lot going on and I cannot focus on one in particular. My focus is bouncing around. With autism, it's I cannot filter out any of these. They're all coming at me at once. That was far more indicative of how I felt my sensory issues were. And also routine, I will have a meltdown if someone cancels on me last second. Even someone saying, hey, I know it's last second, but do you want to go get dinner? Even if I want to, I've decided what I'm doing for the rest of my day already, Mm -hmm. and it'll throw me into a tailspin. I didn't know that was a Trait either, So those are really the big things that I, I really identified with. And I didn't quite know that all of those were autistic traits because, again, I had a very stereotypical view of what that looked like. And then there's something called echolalia. And that's repeating sounds. It's a form of stimming, which is self-stimulatory behavior. Everyone does it. It's like when you're taking a test and you twirl your hair to concentrate or you tap your foot. But for ADHD people, it's to get rid of excess energy. For autistic people, it's to focus your sensory input and have something else for your brain to sort of register, mm-hmm. to override it. It relaxes autistic people. Like it is, it's vital for our, our health. And I didn't realize that my thing I thought was just being a quirky theater kid. If I heard a sound I liked, I'd repeat it. Or if I heard a voice I thought was cool, I'd try to mimic it. And that's a form of stimming. Hmm. And I do it constantly. And it's actually why I'm good at voice acting. It's why I can pick up almost any voice I really want to if you give me a week. So yeah, those are really the things that told me I
0: I had to pursue this further. So what was that process like getting that diagnosis? It is really hard for Hmm. an
1: adult to seek out an autism diagnosis. Most of the professionals won't do it because the only diagnostics that they really have, uh, according to the DSM, are for children. That's where a lot of the problem lies too, because not only are the questions they ask geared for parents to answer about their children, but they are also very much geared towards children who have been socialized male. So you have to find a specialist who looks at adults. And of course I had to look at, okay, What are some things I need to look for to see? Is this someone who's going to say, hey, you're autistic, congrats, you know something new about yourself? Or am I going to find a professional who goes, hey, you're autistic, sorry, you're broken. Mm -hmm. Let's do these things to make you act quote unquote normal. And sadly, a lot of the places I found around me in Dallas were exorbitantly expensive and offered something called applied behavioral analysis, which is, I hesitate to use the word therapy, but that's what they call it and the entire purpose that the creator of this made it for was to make an autistic child indistinguishable from normal people, as he put it. So it is a masterclass in suppressing all of your autistic traits only for the reason of making neurotypical people comfortable. And over half of people who go through that end up meeting the clinical criteria for PTSD, among other things, and having a poor understanding of things like consent because they're encouraged just to hug people even if they don't like it. So I had to find someone who didn't do that, but I did find a really great doctor online. She herself is a late diagnosed autistic woman and she specializes in using this whole like battery of diagnostics to look at all of your traits and really evaluate what have you been suppressing because you've been forced to and you've evaded diagnosis this long. And I went through her and it was honestly one of the most cost-effective ones too. I started that early February, got my preliminary diagnosis, In March. And on the 20th, I had my like final sort of like appointment with her virtually. It's a process.
0: I'm so happy that you were able to find someone, but it's also so unfortunate that it's not very accessible.
1: It is not at all.
0: So, what was that like having that confirmation of a diagnosis at the age of 30? What was that experience like for you? And do you think it would have really changed your life if you? you were able to get that diagnosis when you were young.
1: I've had days since my diagnosis where I'm like super positive about things, but then I'm looking at all of these memories through this new lens of understanding I'm autistic and there's been a real grieving process for how much like I was trying harder than everyone and I felt like I was, but I had convinced myself I was just bad at being a human being, which really common for autistic people, we feel like an alien who got left here and has to blend in for our own safety no matter how hard we try we always get caught within that metaphor i felt like someone told me what planet i was from and like said hey you're not bad at being a human you're actually perfectly good alien you're doing great at it i think it really would have changed a lot of things because there's so much in my life i didn't realize like oh my migraines that i've had since i was four years old <sighs> That happens to autistic people when we've endured sensory overload for so long. Our brains are like, please stop. I, I can't. And my stomach problems were related to being like a comorbid thing for being autistic. Every time a doctor insisted I was depressed... And they put me on antidepressants, which would make me depersonalize for months at a time. And I didn't feel better. I wasn't depressed. I was in something called autistic burnout. And that's what happens when we just allow ourselves to undergo sensory overload. And we've been masking and we've been going beyond our limits for too long. And they would put me on those meds and throw me right back into the environment that burnt me out and wonder why I wasn't doing better. There's been a definite grieving process because I think so much would have been a lot easier. Like the dangerous social situations, I know I put myself in as a teenager because I thought that was normal and that's what I had to do. And I didn't understand these social norms Just feeling like, until being an adult, a lot of really close relationships with other women. And that is also really common for late diagnosed autistic women because these social cues and gender role stuff are all social constructs that we're not picking up on as well. Uh-huh. That we don't always understand. So yeah, there's, there's been a grieving process, but I've also let go of a lot of these rules I didn't know I was applying to myself. I feel like I'm like more autistic after my diagnosis because I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna repeat the same meal I've been eating for the past two weeks. Fine. Or no, I don't want to do this like zoom call thing with these people I'm my battery's low I can't do it so I am being kinder to myself and giving myself breaks and acknowledging like I need to take a break this is too loud this is too much so it's been a really mixed bag like I'm happy it answers a lot I'm also like trying to learn like learn a new way of like walking through the world which is overwhelming especially at 30 as I'm becoming more myself, not apologizing, not picking up on a social cue or demanding, hey, I'm always direct with you when I'm upset, or I've asked you if I've done something to upset you. I need you to be direct with me because it takes a lot less for a friend to just be honest with me and sit with how uncomfortable that makes them than it does for me to like try to translate a thousand different social cues I might be missing. So I've honestly, I've lost a few friends because I've said, mm. hey, I'm not going to agonize over this. I need you to be honest with me. So that's been interesting but the friends who are working with me I'm even closer to them now
0: so how does your ADHD the autism and eating disorder all intersect and affect one another I know when we connected again you talked about how in the previous episode some of the things that you attributed to ADHD were actually a part of your autism so let's clarify those things
1: One of the things that really sort of a mixed thing between the ADHD and my autism are my hunger cues. I'll get hyper-focused on something and forget to eat, but there's also something that a lot of people with hyposensitivity like I have is something called interoception and we have poor interoception and that is the way your brain and your body communicate with each other. So Mm. for me, that looks like my body and my brain not talking to each other about when I'm hungry. If I don't set alarms to remind me to eat, like I mentioned in the previous episode, sometimes I just won't eat. On one hand, the ADHD does play a role because I might just get distracted and invested in something and not do it. My body won't really tell me I'm hungry until it's like, hold on, why do I feel physically ill or why do I feel dizzy? oh, I haven't eaten since like 7am. And when you have an eating disorder, it's not great when your body doesn't remind you that you're hungry. But yeah, I learned that eating disorders are also comorbidity for autistic people. It's like 23% of autistic women and that's anorexia alone. It doesn't include other eating disorders they could have. So I think also I had mentioned that I know things get bad when I feel like things are out of control. And being autistic... Things feel out of control a lot easier because I'm living in a world that's not designed for me. Right. And routines change. I have sensory overload. I'm having to try to fit in with neurotypicals so they don't think I'm just being rude. So. That also feeds into the eating disorder where things feel out of control a whole lot easier. So on the ADHD side, yeah, I did want control over something also, but I do think the autism probably plays a much bigger role in making me need control far more easily. And then The one thing that I think is pretty strictly on the autism, which doesn't really interfere with the ADHD is one of the traits of autism is rituals and repetitive behavior. So repetitive behavior can look like having to eat at the same time every day or For me, if I don't get to work out at the time I want to work out, it throws me into a tailspin because I'm like, okay, how do I rearrange the rest of my day though? I work out at one. How am I going to do this? But adherence to routine and ritual are not great when you have an eating disorder because when you don't get to acknowledge whatever that intrusive thought you've been acknowledging, it makes you feel even more out of control if you've relapsed and you've been acting that way so that makes it so easy to fall into a pattern of disordered behaviors because by nature I build routines very easily like I'm just wired to I think that was another big revelation about
0: it that's so interesting so how are you shifting things in your life now that you know the differences between all three of these I'm trying to do a lot more to
1: work on my sort of tenuous grasp on feeling in control of the little things in my life. I had mentioned in the ADHD episode that I needed routine because I do with ADHD. It's kind of a battle because the autism part of me like loves routine, but the ADHD part needs novelty so I don't get bored and literally fall asleep. (laughs) So it's trying to find a real balance between that. But I'm allowing myself to tell someone like, no, I can't do a Zoom call then that's when I have a food break or like, no, I can't do this then that's when I'm going to work out. Letting myself say like, no, even though I'm making an appointment with myself, I still have to honor that time with myself because yeah. that's important to my mental health. And I'm also giving myself breaks. So as it would happen around the time I was seeking diagnosis on my show, I was having a guest voice actor who wrote an audio drama about her late autism and ADHD diagnoses. I've obviously gotten to talk to her quite a bit, but one of her suggestions was to set up an area in my house to give myself like sensory breaks And I've kind of done that in my guest room and I'm scheduling time just to hang out under my weighted blanket. It's the coldest room in the house, which is what I need. And I'll like meditate and I'll light one of my favorite incense because my sense of smell is also really acute being autistic. And there are some smells I cannot stand. The way my therapist put it was like, my meltdowns don't just happen. I've got this bucket that's kind of full of anxiety, masking, and my sensory problems. And it keeps getting fuller and fuller and fuller. And if I don't use coping mechanisms to help empty it out a little, one small thing is going to make it look like everything's overflowed and I'm going to have a meltdown. So I'm using those sensory breaks in my routine as a way of kind of emptying that sensory and anxiety bucket. As much as I can. I'm also setting more boundaries with people as far as kind of my expectations for communicating with me. For me, I don't naturally interpret social cues, which Has been a big revelation because I thought everyone was doing what I have to do internally all of the time. But I have to look at past data I have on past interactions with someone and what language they're using and like maybe how often they've messaged me to try to figure out what someone's trying to tell me or if they're mad at me. And I would agonize over did I do something wrong? Are they mad at me? What am I doing? Like, what does this mean? For me, if I'm angry at someone, I just say, Hey, I'm angry at you. This is why. I'd like to talk about it. And I know that makes non-autistic people really uncomfortable. This is exactly how I'm feeling. How are you feeling? Let's discuss that. But I'm requiring people to meet me in the middle from now on. And that's something I don't understand. It's like people pay so much to go to therapy and like couples therapy to learn how to like communicate directly with their partners and stuff. Y'all, you get that for free with me. (laughs) like I'm not going to lie to you about it those are some big changes I've been making
0: interesting thank you for sharing and I really really liked that visual yeah no problem So do you want to dive into the stigmatized beliefs a little bit more? What do you believe or what have you experienced thus far are the biggest myths, misunderstandings, or just ignorant and stigmatized beliefs that people have regarding autism? And then maybe why those are not accurate. That has been overwhelming.
1: April is actually Autism Awareness Month. Sounds like it would be good, but I saw some autistic people online going, hey, I know this month is really triggering. Everyone buckle in. Boy, were they not joking. It is basically a month where people try to say we need to be fixed or find ways to detect autism in utero to try to make sure we're not born. So April was really hard for me. And I heard a lot of stuff that I couldn't believe people would think about me as a human being. So the big one was that autistic people don't feel empathy or emotions. I actually feel more empathy than neurotypical, according to like some of the tests, like my actual doctor did more intensely. But the way we're empathetic looks different than a neurotypical's empathy. So it's kind of deemed not to be empathy for some reason. There's this dual empathy theory that says there's cognitive empathy, and that's like if you told me like my dog died, I would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. That really sucks, but it's not going to make me cry. But if I were in the room with you and you were crying about your dog dying, it would be like I just kind of downloaded that emotion. I was like, oh God, oh no, what can I do for you? Like, And I really, really intensely would feel what you're feeling. That is active empathy. And we have a surplus of that for the most part. I am just one autistic person and we all have different array of So some people do have even different ways of experiencing empathy. For me, that's really how I operate. And there's also this this idea that we don't really have emotions. I actually do sensitivity reading on the side sometimes. And I was like, I'm taking this job. Oh, there's an autistic character. And I had to do sensitivity reading on something that heavily implied that the autistic character was incapable of feeling love. I told my husband, like, sorry, babe, I learned that I'm incapable of love of. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> like, oh, man, that stinks. But there's actually a comorbid condition called alexithymia. That's often what gets confused with not feeling emotions. And I'm kind of on the borderline for that. But that means I have trouble identifying my emotions. Like I had said in the previous episode on ADHD, sometimes I don't know much more nuance between mad, sad, and happy. And sometimes I I really don't know whether it's mad or sad, which I've actually improved quite a bit since last episode. But it It kind of takes a little bit for me to, it's like the emotions have to buffer and they just take a little while to catch up. So sometimes it'll be a week later and I'll go, oh, that made me really sad, that thing that happened last week. There' are just so many different things, like I had someone say like, "Oh, I'm sorry about your mental illness." Well, my eating <laughs> disorder is a mental illness. My autism is not. It's neurodiversity. Autistic people have been here from the very beginning. We're not broken. We don't have a missing puzzle piece, like all of these really ableist charities that don't have any autistic people in them have. And I've heard like the phrase suffering with autism. The only thing that makes me feel like I'm suffering sometimes is living in a world not designed for me. Not my autism, not by virtue of being autistic. Yeah, I love the fact that I'm autistic. No offense to holistic people, and holistic is just <laughs> non-autistic. But like now that I know how my brain operates differently, I'm like, dang, I think I would be bored. <laughs> <laughs> when I was starting the process, I had some well-meaning people go, "I don't think you're autistic. You're you're so social. You're so outgoing. Mm. But that's really not." always the case. Like Autistic people are individuals. There are traits we have that have nothing to do with us being autistic. So our social desires are going to vary from person to person. I'm a social person. I like talking to other people, but sometimes it takes a lot out of me. A lot, a lot, especially trying to do this mental calculus and with masking my autism, which takes a lot of energy. But I'm social and some autistic people are, some aren't. And there's also a myth that autistic people don't want relationships. And I've talked to a lot of late diagnosed people who were like, even denied a screening because they were married. And they're like, well, if you're autistic, you wouldn't care about that. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Autistic people tend to have really intense relationships, like even with friends. And that's something I learned was cool about me because Sometimes I feel like, man, I'm giving way more to this friendship than this person is giving, which mm-hmm. leaves me open to get a little hurt. But also, I have some of the most incredible close friends in the world. Sometimes people will think I'm talking to my husband when I get a text because I'm grinning ear to ear, and I'm like, no, it's just my friend. He's like, my <laughs> best friend. I love him so much. <laughs> That's oh, so my cute. heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, my friend texted me, and I get like the little heart flutters. Like, yeah just for my friends. So it's different. We might not have as many relationships, but I feel like the word friend or I feel like the choice to have a partner, it means something a lot different to us. And again, we're all individuals.
0: Not a monolith. I'm sorry that other people were projecting those stigmatized beliefs they had about autism onto you and invalidating your experience.
1: It stinks, but like for the most part, when I've been like, hey, that's a pretty awful take, I think you're pretty ignorant you should go learn more. (laughs) They're like, uh, what? So my honesty, I'm like, go educate yourself. I'm not going to go do it for you. So
0: you've mentioned masking a few times. So for those that are unaware of what that means, let's talk about what masking entails. How does ableism and a world built for neurotypical people and the shame and stigma all play a part into masking? Masking Is act of suppressing your autistic
1: traits for the sake of appearing and performing this sort of neurotypical character. This is the part that really messed me up during my diagnostics. I took a test called the CATQ and that measures masking traits. And masking is really prevalent in autistic people who are socialized female because there is this expectation of girls to be adept at socializing. Mm -hmm. And there's this expectation that we be delicate and not necessarily in, in a physical sense, but delicate in how we talk and move in our relationship with other people. And autistic people have a completely different experience of gender as well. So especially autistic women, when we've been othered because we're not being a girl quite right, we pick up these cues like, oh, I did this wrong. I need to change. So this test that I had to do called the cat CATQ measures masking traits. And the questions were asking me if I did things that I assumed everyone was doing in every social interaction. This test doesn't have that many questions, but it took me over an hour to do because I was weeping. There were so many things that I thought, wait, you don't do that. Wait, not everyone does that. So for me, masking involves controlling myself head to toe, basically. I'm doing this constant mental calculus of what I need to do next. I have facial expressions. I've practiced in the mirror. And I use them in moments that seem appropriate. And I didn't realize I was doing that. But for every moment that someone said, don't look at me like that, or that face is disrespectful, or why do you look so mean? Or why are you making that face? Throughout my life, I've gone to correct it, quote unquote. My mask just gets more fortified. So I adjust my posture and my face to let people know I'm interested in what they're saying. I force myself to make eye contact, which to me, it feels like the other person is seeing me naked. Mm-hmm. I didn't know everyone else didn't naturally just kind of feel uncomfortable with eye contact. And I don't actually know when to stop. So I usually hold eye contact too long because I don't know when's the right time to look away. And there have been too many times where someone thinks I'm trying to smash because I'm <laughs> I'm staring at them too long. And I was uh-huh. like, oh no, that explains a lot. I'll add tone to my voice and I have tone that I've practiced to make sure I don't sound mean, to make sure I sound interested. For certain situations, I come up with scripts in my head. When I know I have a social situation coming up and it's not even intentionally, like even coming up to talking to you, it's like there's been a program running in the back of my brain and I'm just like, stop it. You're just going to talk to her. Stop it. You're just going to talk to her. But it's just been doing it for 30 years in my life. So, my brain was coming up with responses, even though, no, you know what to say. There is an answer. But I do that for all sorts of social situations. I need detail and I evaluate. Autistic people think really literally. So, masking is also me hyper analyzing things in social situations. So, like when someone says, How are you? I have to treat it like a foreign language. Open ended questions are a nightmare because those usually heavily rely on understanding the social cues. So, like using previous data, I'm like, Okay, non autistic people usually don't care to hear how you are. So they just lie and say, good. And you... I don't understand why you would not want an honest answer, but then I have to ask, well, is a friend asking me? Or is this like someone in retail trying to figure out if I need help finding something? Or is it an acquaintance? Like, what's the context? I'm doing that all the time with so many things, certain social situations. I'll Google them, which I thought other people also did. I've been to three weddings. One of them was my own, eloping in my apartment. (laughs) Last one I did was Googling, like, what do I talk about with the people who are at the table with me at the wedding? Like what responses are appropriate. And then autistic people also learn social cues from like TV shows and books. I recognize that in myself, like from childhood, like going, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do when someone says this and then I have to keep myself from stimming a lot which so stimming for me I crack my knuckles a lot I'll run my fingers through my hair I kind of wiggle back and forth and I have to actively suppress that so if I'm having sensory overload and I have no outlet for it I have to also pretend that I'm okay and there's also changing my dress and my physical appearance sometimes a lot of ridicule I got as a kid was like not being particularly girly or not being a girl kind of correctly and I a specific moment. And in the most autistic way, I can tell you January 7th of 2002, I was at a new school halfway through the year. And one of the girls in the class pointed out how weird it was that I didn't wear makeup. And I thought, Oh, no, that's weird here. I have to start wearing makeup whenever I go to school. So I had my mom buy me makeup. And pretty much through college, I wore makeup every day because, oh, that's what I have to do to be a normal girl. or so They won't point that out. So masking is linked to trauma. And there's so many moments where I can pinpoint when I started doing something like having a parent say, like, look at me when I'm talking to you stop fidgeting or like, it's not that bad at this store. Why are you being dramatic? You're being a brat. And I'd be having sensory overload. So when I took that test on masking, the average autistic woman scored 124 and I scored a 149. That broke me for a little bit. Yeah. That breaks my heart because I was agonizing over everything just to Fit in with neurotypicals, and inevitably throughout my life, I've had it pointed out that I'm still doing it wrong. Thankfully, like as an adult, I found more community of people who love me when I'm my weird has been dialed up 100%. My husband knows me 100%. So I'm not going through the identity crisis. I think a lot of autistic people go through, but I know autistic people, the divorce rate for late diagnosed autistic people is really high because Mm -hmm. when they start unmasking, they go, oh, I was never actually myself with my spouse. I don't hold these values. I was just doing them so I'd have people. So it's a lot more insidious masking for autistic people is also a privilege. So I carry privilege for the reason that I'm able to mask because so many cannot. And it has gotten me into spaces that a lot of autistic people can't get into. It's gotten me jobs that some of them wouldn't have been given. And when you like look at that at the intersection of BIPOC autistic people or trans autistic people, and autistic people are six to eight times more likely to be trans than non-autistic people. When you look at the intersection of those identities, they have to mask for their own safety. It's a life or death thing. It's a double-edged sword. We're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. So for me, masking, I have to, at a certain point, to be able to do my job. It's glued to my brain. I have to work on being able to just kind of peel it off and say, I choose when I put it on and I take it off whenever I want. Instead of feeling obligated to do it. Yeah. And the suicide rate with autistic people, it's our second highest cause of death. And it's even higher in women. I think it's like nine times higher, partially because of masking. Because I'm sure
0: it gets exhausting.
1: It's exhausting. And so many people go through their life not being able to be themselves for the whole thing. We have to, but then it's also killing us. It also is, we cannot do a lot of things without it. So it's awful. And it's not by virtue of us being autistic, but lack of acceptance.
0: I hate that. (laughs) I'm so sorry. So from your own experience and the research that you've been doing, what language and terminology do you believe is harmful versus helpful when it comes to autism?
1: Yeah, this has been a really big learning experience for me because there's so many terms that Professionals use still that the autistic community at large have said are not helpful at all and are hurting us. I think the big one are functioning labels, Mm -hmm. high functioning, low functioning. Those are based on outdated science, for one. The really big difference between the two is whether or not you have a comorbid intellectual disability or you might be non-speaking. But putting these labels on people, a non-speaking autistic person could be put on the low-functioning end, and they'd be denied opportunities for the mere fact that they might not communicate through speech. Right, right. But. They have thoughts and ideas and this complex internal life. And if they had the accommodations for things, AAC or sign language, they can communicate beautifully. It's just not through speech. So they're robbed of opportunities. But for people like me who are on the high-functioning end of what I would be labeled, my support needs right now, they're higher than they've ever been. I might be denied accommodations due to being slapped with a a high-functioning label, Functioning itself also is defined on your ability to like keep a job, provide your labor as capital. And it's just how you function within the paradigm of capitalism, which is just a shitty way to assign value mm-hmm. to a person with how much they can help capitalism. It's assigning value to whether or not you work or how you work or what you need at work. So it's generally not good. We prefer to be asked whether we have high or low support needs because our needs aren't static. We might need more. Or less at certain points in our lives. And there we can be more accurate and it provides more nuance. The other thing I learned, which I think was really shocking, was the term Asperger's. I believe it was 2014 that that diagnosis disappeared because things came to light. That showed that Hans Asperger was actually a Nazi who sent children deemed low-functioning, actually, who wouldn't be able to work and be valuable to Germany, in his eyes, to a hospital to be euthanized. God. So when that became evident, that diagnosis disappeared. So there's no such thing as Asperger syndrome anymore. And the only thing that separated it from autism spectrum diagnosis before was whether or not you spoke before age three, I think. So Asperger's doesn't exist. It's just autism. And please don't associate me with a Nazi. I don't want that title. And then also saying autistic person versus person with autism. Generally, I would make sure to be clear with with the person themselves because some people have a preference one way or another. But the autistic community at large prefers identity first language, which is autistic person Mm -hmm. versus person with autism, which is person-first language. It's an issue because the medical community, social work programs, and all this other stuff, therapists... They are drilled into them to say person first language, even though the majority of us hate it. But I think the way to look at it is like, I don't carry my autism around with me in like in a little tote bag. I can't separate it from myself. It is how I'm wired. It is how I see the world. It affects everything I do, my sight, my smell, whether or not I feel hungry. It's my whole operating system. I'm an autistic person. I'm a short person. It's not a bad thing. I can't separate that from who I am. It's my way of being it's my way of walking through the world. So most prefer autistic rather than person with autism. Hmm.
0: Good to know. Good to know. I think
1: those are the ones I think I see people unintentionally move around, especially because professionals are teaching things that autistic people don't want. Right. Those are the things where even the most well-meaning person might say something and not know because you see non-autistic professionals using those terms.
0: Mm -hmm. So to kind of wrap up, what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? And what would you say to someone else that has also gone through getting An autism diagnosis recently?
1: So for one, if someone knows that they have ADHD and you think maybe I could be autistic, half of autistic people also have ADHD. And I think it's like one in three people with ADHD are autistic. It's a big overlap. So if anything has resonated with you and you kind of think, oh, no maybe I have stuff on this autistic side of that Venn diagram. Please follow that further. Even if you don't go through with the professional diagnosis, which has its pros and cons, like it can be used against you sometimes. So I'd really evaluate that. At least go research as yourself, learn more for yourself. Reframing that and understanding yourself is important. Understanding that I'm not broken, but I'm just a, a perfectly operational autistic person, that's a big burden taken off. If any of it resonates with someone, please look into it. Because like the two leading causes of death for autistic people are epilepsy, for like those who have a comorbid learning disability. And number two is suicide, which is outrageous. And it's not by virtue of being autistic. It's by virtue of thinking you're broken because you're not operating the way you think you're supposed to in this neurotypical world. And if mm-hmm. you can put a name on it, and understand you're not broken, it could literally save your life. There's no reason that we have to lose all these autistic people. And also for someone who's gone through a diagnosis, be gentle with yourself. I'm still really trying to be gentle with myself when I'm trying to give myself breaks. You're telling me I just have to sit here and do nothing. I'm not doing anything. You're undoing so much programming. I'm learning who I am, which is strange at 30, especially when I'm someone who always gets told, Well, you really know who you are. You march to the beat of your own drummer, huh? And I was like, I guess I didn't really quite know who I was. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. And for people who aren't autistic, maybe you have an autistic friend and you want to be like a better ally, meet us in the middle. I wish I could accurately convey how much we agonize over every little thing to make sure we don't upset you and to make sure that we're being a good friend and the amount we invest in friendships is huge. It's going to take a lot less for the non-autistic friend to just sit with that discomfort of having to be upfront and forward and honest about how you're feeling or about your boundaries. Because if you don't state your boundaries to us, we're not going to know them. Mm -hmm. We're not picking up on those cues. So if you have an autistic person in your life, Sit with the discomfort of being really open because it's going to take a lot less for you to sit with that discomfort than for us to try to translate this foreign language of the thousands of permutations of social cues and these hints you might be dropping. The exhaustion from that, it kills us. So try meeting the autistic people in your life in the middle. When you look at someone and you ask them like would you bully an autistic person? They'd be like, "Oh god, of course I wouldn't." But I just need non-autistic people to ask, "Are you kind of teasing your friend who like doesn't want to stay out late or your friend who like does the same thing every day or you're calling them boring or are you making fun of your friend who you think has like an infantile interest or won't stop talking about how much they love Star Trek if we're going to subtweet me about it?" <laughs> people get bullied for autistic traits mm-hmm. all the time. And they might not know that you've been teasing an autistic person for being autistic.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Thank you. Thank you for all of those reminders. I really appreciate it. And I would love to link that chart that initially led you to seeking a diagnosis and any other resources or references that you think would be helpful because I think you've provided so much wisdom and insight. And I, again, really appreciate you being here and sharing your story once again. My doctor provides all of the tests that
1: I took as part of my diagnosis process for free. Oh, wow. And I took about five or six of the different tests before I contacted her. Yes. Yeah, so I'll definitely send that because if anyone's looking to do some self-exploration, that's an excellent place to start.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. So for anyone that wants to reach out and connect with you, work with you, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. So I am most active on my Instagram. So it's Brianne underscore Leeson. And then my podcast is an audio drama. Funny enough, my husband pointed out that one of my main characters is coded as being autistic and now she's autistic on purpose. So if you want to see some or hear some autistic representation by an autistic person, the Instagram for my podcast is at Lucky Winter Show. And that's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The email you can contact me at for any reason is uh, luckywinnershow at
0: gmail.com. Awesome. I will have those linked as well. So like you probably know already, I close out my episodes with a little song recommendation. So do you have a song that you want to leave us off with?
1: Yeah. So I've always been a really big fan of The Talking Heads. And I was delighted to learn that David Byrne is autistic also.
0: Oh, awesome.
1: Yeah. So with that new lens, I was like, man, I I should pick a Talking Heads song because I'm Mm -hmm. listening to them through a new lens. And my husband pointed out that the song Seen and Not Seen by the Talking Heads sounds an awful lot like it's about masking. Seen and Not Seen is what I would recommend because it hits
0: home quite a bit. I can't wait to listen and I'll have that linked as well. Thank you once again for taking the time to be here with us. You are such a delightful guest and bring so much to the table. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.